Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, November the 1st, 2022. New month. But a lot of the old themes, particularly in the publishing business, the news this morning is that the Justice Department, or at least a judge, has blocked the merger of Penguin Random House and Simon Schuster, Simon and Schuster. The arguments, interestingly enough, are that it doesn't benefit the writer. As a writer, I'm not necessarily convinced of that. I'm not sure uh, if big publishing, so to speak, benefits publish uh, benefits writers or not. We've done a lot of thinking and shows about publishing and writers, a lot of stuff about Substack. Uh, I have my own Substack. I hope some of you will follow me on that. Uh, we've had writers on Substack in terms of talking about alternative forms of publishing. But we haven't had many other shows about in innovative publishing startups, physical startups. And we're going to talk about that today. Uh, Info We Trust is an interesting startup trying to visualize data in physical book form. And its founder, uh, RJ Andrews, is with us today. He's uh, on or in, I don't know if you're on or in dog patch, uh, RJ, in San Francisco. Can you be in it, a dog patch, or you're on it? The very I, believe, I believe we are in the dog patch. Okay, well, in or on, you're certainly in the uh, info we trust, the data visualization business. So tell me about this startup, what you're trying to do, uh, and the challenges and opportunities for innovative physical publisher, publishing startup guys like yourself. Sure. So uh, info we trust. Uh, is a modern operation focusing on modern data visualization, what I call data storytelling. And data storytelling is something that's been going on for hundreds of years, uh, where we use charts, maps, and diagrams to try to build better shared understanding of the chaos of the world that surrounds us. Um, and a couple of years ago, I started a new publishing imprint called Visionary Press in order to bring some data storytelling into the physical world, into the analog. And uh, we can talk about why we need to have more analog objects, more beautiful analog objects. I think this is something that you quite appreciate. It's something that I absolutely really appreciate. Um, but half of it is just a frustration with the current landscape of our digital and analog media landscape. Um, yeah, so we had uh, RJ, and I'm sure you're familiar with his work, David Sachs on the uh, on the show last week. He has a new book out. He's speaking at the Miami Book Fair. Um, the future is analog, and I, and I'm sure you would strongly agree with David. What's the problem with just digital publishing? Um, lots of hope and promise over the last 20 years, it never seems to have been realized. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, look, it comes down to this, this thing, this thing's, this thing's magical, but it also is the size of a piece of toast. <laughs> like, as a canvas, it's too small. Uh, the resolution's not that good compared to a, say, steel engraving, right? Uh, the color spectrum is actually not that phenomenal. Uh, it's just, it's an incredibly 
uh, supercharged experience, but it's also an incredibly narrow experience. But of course, the iPhone that you just held up, uh, which we all have, um, is the center of the, the data revolution, the digital revolution. Uh, and you're not just a traditional publisher. You're not physically publishing just textbooks. You're trying to merge these two worlds with info we trust. Is that fair? I think I think the I think the two worlds have to merge. You have to have both. Uh, I, ideally, you're looking at things on the screen and you're looking at things in real life. And there's a certain shared understanding that comes from being able to share things on screens, especially uh, globally. But there's nothing that beats actually putting something down on the table and looking at it with somebody else because you can both you can both point to it in the real world. It it becomes more meaningful when you have something in the real world. I mean, it would be fair to say that of all the traditional analog products, the physical book has held up as well as anything over the last 30 years during the digital revolution. At the beginning, everyone said, oh, books are finished, bookstores are finished. But in many ways, the reverse is true. We love books. Um, I think it's because what's also true is we still have these meat vehicles, these human bodies. And the book sort of stumbled into this perfect form that's perfectly matched, you know, not only just to our body, but particularly our hands. You know, books are built for our hands and, um, you know, human hands, those opposable thumbs are really important in defining how we experience the world. So why not just pitch your idea to a random house or a Simon and Schuster to the big publishing companies? Are they in their own way, uh, RJ, archaic? Are they out of date with today's digital uh, landscape with the with the world of dog patch in San Francisco in 2022. Look, I I would be delighted for one of those houses to see the project that we're releasing and say, hey, we want we want to help you do that. I think that would be lovely. Uh, but quite honestly, uh, my first book, you know, went through a traditional publishing process, and I was quite disappointed. They didn't seem to really understand the um, they didn't understand the importance of the quality of the object, and so inks were out of registration bindings were glued and fell apart. You know, there's a, there's a certain amount of disappointment that came out of my very first publishing project. And so the next round, which is this project is like, we're going to do it correctly. We're going to make, we're going to make not only tell wonderful stories, but we're also going to create beautiful aesthetic objects. Yeah. And you delivered quote unquote, your beautiful aesthetic objects to me last week. Uh, I just live close to you. So it wasn't hard for you to drop them in three of this first set of uh, visionary press books, uh, Etienne Jules Marais, The Graphic Method, Florence Nightingale, Mortality and he Health Diagrams. These are all edited by you, of course, not written by uh, Florence Nightingale. And Emma Willard, Maps of History, edited by Susan Shulton. They're lovely looking books. Uh, they're expensive. And I'm, I'm curious, there's clearly a need for this stuff, RJ. You don't need to convince me of this. But what about the economics? I'm assuming these books cost a significant amount to publish and produce. And, and how are you going to make a business out of this? Well, that, that's a little bit, a bit left to uh, be determined. I mean, we're still very young. Uh, what I know so far is that we already have thousands of books sold. They're going to 40 countries. Um, and so there is at least uh, an early adopter uh, sort of, um, you know, group of fans who are very, very excited to begin receiving. And, and are books. these people I and mean, what's the cover price of the book? They're expensive, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's logged in Bowker as ninety five dollars. 
Uh, we're selling them for $85 a pop, but really we want you to buy the series. And so there's a big discount if you buy the full series. What's shocking is the you... full series of these first three, uh, the graphic method, right. mortality and health, and uh, and then maps of history. And they're, they're a lovely set. Um, Thank you. I'm assuming that this reflects also the fashion in uh, in the music business where um, Amazon today, for example, just announced that uh, everyone on Amazon Prime will have free access to their uh, digital service. So digital has been so commodified that it's essentially free. And it's hard to imagine that the Spotify's and the quobuses of the world will actually survive because Apple and Amazon and perhaps Google will control this business. On the other hand, there is a very healthy industry in the sale of vinyl records, which average, I don't know what they cost, $30, $40, $50. I, I'm a vinyl collector. I'm happy to pay that. Are we seeing, do you think we will eventually see the same in the publishing business where the middle will essentially disappear most books will be free or incredibly cheap, and then there'll be a high end of, of highly curated, beautifully published physical objects like you're doing. I think it's out there. I think that there are uh, there are people trying to do this. You know, there's beautiful coffee table, you know, books that's out there, and there's and then there's also uh, beautiful other books. I, I think the beautiful other books is sort of the category that's yet to really be proven. Meaning, why would you why would you read a you know a hundred and twenty dollar novel? Um, you know who who's really going to read that? You know, is it just a collectible object? And you can buy your fifty dollar vinyl album, and and you're probably still going to listen to it. I think that's what's most important is that we're not we don't want things just to be collectible. You know, if you're making books, what you want more than anything else is you want people to read the book. Is there a, a digital piece to your? Um... Uh, to your product in other words when you when you buy one of these books one of these beautifully curated data-centric books um is there a if you like a digital giveaway that enables people to access the data online or is it simply a standalone analog object so we're focusing now on the analog object but there there is a uh, a path for how this connects to the digital space as you suggested the digital space is going to be really, it's going to be really free. And so what's most important in the digital space is that we did a lot of original photography of rare objects for these books. And so it's important that that rare, that rare photography becomes available to everybody, you know, for free, whether it's through archive.org or, or, or otherwise. There are going to be a lot of people watching this, particularly on Lit Hub, who think to themselves, oh, I'd like to do what RJ is doing. I'd like to do a, an innovative publishing startup. I'd like to venerate the physical book and modernize it as well. But it takes a lot of guts, a lot of balls, RJ, doesn't it? I mean, and some capital. You can't do these sorts of things for free. And you, and you have to be a little foolish, too. <laughs> a little crazy. I mean, we you use the word foolish um, yeah. in Silicon Valley. It's only the crazy. I, I don't know if anyone said this, but they should have. It's only the crazy who survive. It, it, it requires a degree of insanity, a, a kind of mad visionary quality to do these sorts of things. Making Making things in the real world is really hard, much harder than making digital things. And I've made all sorts of digital contraptions across my career. Uh, as, as, as an example, the Florence Nightingale book that you have has these double foldouts. And, yeah, it's a beautiful book. I mean, and, and, a, a really and a double, really it's right on my, and my wife is very, 
she 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 uh, she's she's very strict on the geography of our coffee table, and it's on there, and she's happy with it. The a, a double fold out doesn't only fold out; it folds down as well, right? And um, I, re I I learned through making this book why nobody does double fold outs anymore. It's because it has to be folded by hand, and then it has to be tabbed into the binding also by hand. And it turns out that's extraordinarily. Uh, expensive. But the thing is, every time you, you, you meet one of these challenges, you can, you can see, oh, this is a challenge. I'm not going, I'm not going to do it. It's, it's a project killer. Or you can say, you know what, this is a great opportunity. By doing this, I can differentiate my product. I can make it so, so, so wonderful because I'm so crazy. Nobody else would do anything like this. And then you, and then you get a, a standout product. And so as, as the optimist, and as the as the bibliophile, that's sort of uh, where we've tacked every every single time. What about the issue of scale, though, RJ? Again, a word that's perhaps overused in Silicon Valley, but very important for startup people. Can this scale? I mean, these books are beautiful, but I, I assume to make a profit, to make a, to build a real business around it, you need to be producing a number of these books a year. I mean, how many? I, I assume you've raised some money, or you've put some of your own money into it. Um, how many of these kind of projects do you need to do a year to make it a viable business? Well, a lot of the work's been done, which is that we've established the supply chain. And I don't mean supply chain just from operations, but the creative supply chain, all the different, you know, the dozens of creatives who've worked on this project. So th that's been done. We've also set up the design system. And so this particular series is sort of a flagship series, right? You start a new electric car company, you don't start with a minivan, you start with a roadster, right? And so this, these books are a roadster um, and they can be expanded. You know, we have three titles out now, but we have a roadmap. I mean, there's so many stories in this vein, um, right. which is a data graphics, people doing batshit crazy things with data graphics that we can keep going. And so that's, that's one element of the scale. The other element of the scale is that the best marketing we have is these books themselves. People are starting to receive these books. Are you getting them in the, I mean, is the, is the key to get them into the stores? These are beautiful books that would sit very well on, in the front of bookstores, uh, my local bookstore down on Haight Street. I'm sure you're familiar with it. But that, that space is valuable. It's hard to, to get on those tables at the front of bookstores. How are you going to do that? I'm, I'm not obsessed. This is uh, an analog first product, but a digital first business, if that makes sense. So I'm not obsessed yet, especially as we're still lingering uh, in the pandemic. I'm not obsessed right now with getting this in every bookstore. Uh, you know, this is this is not the thing. Uh, and I learned this through my first project is I had this I had this model that, you know, to be a successful book, you had to be in an airport bookstore. And that's what that's what it meant. And what you really learn is that in books and really everything that you see is that if you're seeing it, it's because somebody paid for you to see it. Um, and so we are relying so far on quite a lot of word of mouth. Um, and we're, we're expecting on that to continue as people actually see these these books come to life. Word of uh, mouth, meaning quite literally people putting these books out and someone coming over to their home and saying, wow, these are cool. I'd like to get some myself. What about advertising? Are you, do you have a budget for, um, for advertising online? I, you have a Twitter account, but it, it's, mm. it's not particularly aggressive. No, it's, it's not particularly aggressive. We did a little, uh, so we crowdfunded this project 
Uh, and that's how that's how it began. That's how we got a little nest egg to get everything started. We did a little advertising around that, but even the advertising landscape is 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 strange. Everything's weird right now, right? I mean, tw Twitter's you know in the last week, ten days, Twitter is sort of like going upside down. Um, Meta Facebook uh, is also you know lost what three quarters of its value in the last however many months, and so even that landscape is very very strange. Um, Honestly, we don't put have it mildly. That. Yeah, I mean, yeah, a lot of people are, are writing the obituary of social media, and it may be slightly premature, but certainly there's a crisis in social media with the with a massive crash of the, mm. of the Meta uh, stock price, and of course, what's happening um, at uh, Twitter. What about AI and data, RJ? Again, the 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 forces seem to be radically dichotomous on the one hand we have projects like yours which are manipulating data by hand curating them in a very loving way in a very human-centric way on the other hand uh we have ai projects like dali um which are, are generating images and presumably data images through ai uh mm. do you use ai at all in your project and is that a viable way to produce data-centric books uh, right now, uh, AI is viable only for the experimenter, the early adopter. Um, but I'm, I'm, I was very pessimistic on the NFT craze from about a year plus ago. Yeah, you're and not I, alone on that one. I have, I have the absolute opposite response to the the text to image uh, revolution, which is happening right now. I don't know how long it's going to take for the right tools to emerge and to be integrated into normal creative workflows. But uh, in terms of creating new data stories and new data graphics, I believe the text to image is real and it's going to be significant. And what about data to text? Data? What about, uh, I mean, presumably your books are, are, um, are, are, are human-centric ways of translating data into, uh, into narrative. But couldn't that be done through AI in a way that would cut, significantly cut your costs and you could still produce beautiful books? Maybe. I mean, the problem is whenever you... Uh, so what are data graphics useful for? They're good for understanding, but really they're all about persuasion. It's a communication tool. And when you have communication tools, they have to survive in an, uh, an attention landscape and that landscape's always shifting. And so if you routinize program the outputs, what you're going to get is something that always looks the same. And once something always looks the same, nobody pays attention to it. So the human always has to be in the loop somehow uh, in order to keep things interesting, to keep things just a little bit weird so that your curiosity gap is, is, is spiked and you pay attention to the graphic. You mentioned, RJ, that you crowdfunded this project in the beginning. Um, so people invested their own money with the guarantee that they would get some of the products. Is that right? Uh, yeah, people uh, people bought one, two, or three books. I mean, what was what was insane to me is that ninety percent of the people bought the entire set. And that enabled you. I mean, I assume you put some of your money in, but that enabled you to build a business. That's correct. Yeah, we raised uh, the public facing value. We raised about one hundred twenty five thousand dollars through a crowdfunding effort, and that let us uh, go attack all three all three titles at once. And how did you? I mean, there's a lot of stuff on these crowdfunded networks. Which one did you use? 
We used Kickstarter. You know, Kickstarter is a uh, Kickstarter isn't perfect, but I don't know any other platform or way to raise one hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars from uh, from six hundred strangers. Yeah, I mean, it's really impressive, and I assume that excusing the pun you kickstarted your funding through friends and family or was this exclusively through just putting it up on kickstarter and it caught fire online through their platform uh you know i did as much hustle as i could before the kickstarter launched but we we raised i think it was twenty five thousand dollars on our first day and so we definitely made a splash on that first day but you know there was a lot of hustle in order to have a really a really successful first day and that involves contacting everybody I know. That involves having a publicist work on the project. And so, you know, we took a semi-professional approach to the campaign. Yeah, it requires, and again, this comes back, I guess, to the Random House, Simon & Schuster News. It requires a publisher uh, with some entrepreneurial chops like you. You can't just sit back and say, oh, I'm going to sign this author and these books will sell themselves. You've got to be selling if you're going to be a publishing startup. Is that fair? Uh, all uh, selling all the time, but you know the problem is if people think you're selling, then then you're not selling correctly. What you really need to be doing is sharing your excitement, sharing your enthusiasm. You know, it, 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 and and because that's infectious. That's what people really, uh, really love. And we haven't talked about any of the stories at all in the book, but hopefully that yeah, my let, excitement, talk, uh, my excitement I mean, is what comes out, right? Right. So let, let, let me give you an opportunity to talk about uh, each of these books and 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 if you like, pitch them to our audience. So why would somebody want to pay $85 for this book, The Graphic Method by Etienne Jules Marais, which is edited by George Hattab and, and yourself? Sure. So Marais was this, uh, was this French technical scientific genius. And he did something very, very special. He was the first to say, there's this thing called data visualization, and it's going to change the world. And here are all the examples of great data visualization. He's the first one to really catalog and put a name and explain why data visualization, why charts, diagrams, why they are so magical. The thing is that we don't know about Murray. And the reason we don't know about Murray is because it's never been translated to English. And so that is what we've done here. And we've not only translated to English, but we've reproduced all of his beautiful, beautiful graphics. So a lot of the famous charts that we know from the history of data visualization are famous only because Murray said this one is important. So that's, that's the pitch on Murray. It's probably the nerdiest of the three volumes. Uh, everyone, of course, is familiar with Florence Nightingale. We've even done a show or two about her and her work in um, the Crimean War. Uh, how did you use Nightingale for this second book, which you edited? Yeah, so this one, I mean, they're all my babies, but this is this is really maybe my favorite baby is the Nightingale volume. Night, Nightingale used uh, diagrams, statistical diagrams in order to promote public health. And pe some people might be familiar with one or two of her diagrams, but nobody's ever been able to piece together how she did it. Who did she work with? Why did she did it? Uh, what were her diagrams successful? And so we've not only pieced together the story behind how she did it, but also we've found all this incredible stuff in archives that have never been published before, including all of these hand-drawn drafts right? That she edited and you can see her pencil notes on like, you know, change this line color or this line weight. And so the, the, the story is not only about how she used diagrams to persuade, but also it's a very, very deep look into the craft of making data graphics. And really, even if the 
the product looks like it's made by a machine, it's really, it reveals how everything is, is hand wrought. Right. And you quote her, uh, whenever I am infuriated, I revenge myself with a new diagram, which is a fascinating thing that she wrote in 1857, I assume during the Crimean war. Yeah. Just after, just after it ended. Uh, and then the third book, uh, Maps, of course, we always think of maps as being visually very exciting. Uh, mm -hmm. Emma, this one by uh, Emma Willard, uh, edited by Susan Shulton. Who was uh, Emma Willard? So Emma Willard was, um, was this woman who was born out of the American Revolution and became the uh, first big proponent of young women's education in America, founded a school which still exists to today. And in addition to being an educator, she also published many atlases and many spectacular graphics. And so she is known generally um, as, uh, as a champion of uh, young women's education. But what really attracted me to the Emma Willard story is that she eventually makes uh, these insane graphics. And in the back of the book, we have a full-size poster of her most famous graphic, which is the Temple of Time. And it's, it's enormous. And you look at that graphic and you think, how did anybody make this? Where did this come from? I mean, it's, it's, it's more spectacular than any timeline you would see today. And so what the story does is it explains her career and how she started making very traditional atlases and how those evolved over time uh, to atlases to help explain history. And eventually these iconic large wall wall charts that explained all of history in one shot they're beautiful books again they, they'll sit very well on on anyone's shelf as you manifest on the website the willard book the nightingale book the jules murray book what 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 other projects have you got upcoming um rj what what books do you expect to come out to publish in the next few months or the next well year? well we're uh we're really focused on on, on these three titles, honestly. And so what I'm, what I'm most excited about next is I'm going to London to the Florence Nightingale Museum to launch that particular title at the end of this month. And so that's, that's, what, I'm, that's what I'm most giddy for. Um, and you know, we'll see how the next couple months go. And then in the new year, we'll have some announcements about you know, the next titles for the publishing. So how many do you also. need to sell to break even? I mean, what, what are the economics here? Because ultimately, I know it's rather grubby to talk about economics but ultimately mm. if you don't make money on this you're not going to be able to continue yeah okay so uh so uh i don't have my spreadsheet in front of me but, but approximately the, are we talking yeah. five ten so thousand if, a thousand if, if we if we did not have if we did not have the supply chain crisis which um not the supply chain but the shipping crisis the shipping look shipping costs have quadrupled since this project was crowdfunded, paper costs have doubled, right? Printing real stuff is really, really hard right now. It's really expensive, takes forever. It's a big headache. Um, but if we didn't have that shipping cost quadruple, then the project would already be profitable. At this point, I need to sell a, a few hundred more books for it to be in the black. And so, you know, we're, you know, a matter of weeks from that. Well, I don't want to make this into a, an infomercial, uh, <laughs> borrowing from your or data commercial. Uh, I don't have no investment in uh, in info we trust, but these are beautiful books, and they will, Thank you. they will look good on anyone's shelf. And anyone who cares about new models of publishing or beautiful books uh, could do a lot worse than buy one of these books by uh, RJ. So congratulations, RJ, on the books and on the project. It requires a great deal of of grit and vision and bravery, I think, to do what you're doing. And and I think it's to be 
commended, and I think it's something that big publishers, the you know maybe the Random Houses of the world, the Bertelsmans of the world, should be focused on working with guys like you rather than trying to merge with Simon and Schuster and just turn big publishing into an even bigger version of publishing without innovation. So congratulations on that. Uh, the books, as I said, should be bought and put on, on, on your book should be put and put on uh, everyone's bookshelf and coffee table. Uh, what other books are you enjoying? Are there other books like this by partners or competitors, I guess, that you've enjoyed? Or do you tend to read more traditional narratives, more traditional uh, books? So, uh, so my hobby is collecting historic information graphics. You can see them over my shoulder dating back to the 1760s. Um, there are some examples like monographs, right? And so usually you see monographs of artists or graphic designers. There's not a lot of monographs on people who have done things with data. And so we've sort of lifted that form and that approach a little bit. Uh, in terms of uh, books that I'm excited about, the book that I... Uh, gift most often is a book called Unflattening um, by a fellow San Franciscan named Nick Susanis. And it is the most creativity I've ever seen between two covers. Um, and it's executed all in black and white. Nick did Unflattening as his uh, PhD thesis. It's a graphic novel and it's all about, it's all about uh, living our experience and are thriving in the world. Uh, it's, 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 it's a multidimensional experience that has to be that you have to hold and you have to, you have to sort of take, you have to go on the ride, right? You have to buy the ticket, go on the ride. So uh, my recommendation, persistent recommendation is on flattening. Uh, it's just, uh, it's just phenomenal.